Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze wearing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three older sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Hello, my name's Mary. I'm going to continue reading for us. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down here only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear come and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's really lovely to be here. I love coming to the 10.30 congregation. It's such a warm... You, you are a very warm group of people. I uh, hope you feel that. And if you're visiting or new, join, because it's a great group of people to be part of. Um, let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are uh, our God, that you speak in your word. And we pray that as we listen to this passage today, that you might do a work in us that is powerful, that brings about faith in you, and that gives us confidence that you are the God over all things, more powerful than anything, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, as people have read this story, they've tried to do different things with it. I don't know if you've realized that. Some people have tried to revise this story. That's uh, what one journalist, a Canadian journalist named Malcolm Gladwell, you might have read some of his books, did. He wrote a book about this 10 years ago called David and Goliath where he unpacked the story and he said, we've misunderstood this over the years. He said uh, it's likely that Goliath had some sort of um, brain tumour or something like that and he couldn't see properly and David just changed the rules and so this is a story about being innovative and changing the rules and bringing a gun to a knife fight, so to speak. Uh, some, some people have revised it. Some people have treated the account, the account as a metaphor. And so you read this and you're supposed to think about what are the big things in my life that I'd like to see change and how can I have faith and see those things change? And so maybe it's a dream that you haven't fulfilled, maybe it's a fear or an anxiety that you have and you're supposed to 
see that as kind of like the Goliath in your life and you are supposed to try to get past it with faith. The other way some people have seen this is as a fairy tale. I actually think that's kind of how the children's Bible authors see this in a funny way. They kind of treat it like the Christian version of Jack and the Beanstalk where um, it's got a moral about standing up to bullies in your life and you know, making sure that you don't let big people push you around. Now, I don't want to go down any of those different roads. I don't want to revise it. I don't want to treat it as a metaphor. I don't want to treat it as a fairy tale. What I want us to do today is to take this account as the Bible gives it to us, as a real event that happened in the history of Israel that is about God delivering his people and ultimately points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's two things that I want to think about today together. The first one is that in the face of opposition, David conquers. In the face of opposition, David conquers. Often this account is called David and Goliath. That's probably what it's headlined as in your Bible, not in the original text, but added in by the translators. But you might notice there's a lot more people than just David and Goliath in this story. There's other characters. There's the nation of Israel. There's the nation of the Philistines. There is King Saul. There's David's brother Eliab. Not only does David conquer in the face of a really frightening enemy, he also conquers in the face of lots of other opposition, of uh, a fearful nation a feeble king, and a faithless brother. So I want to look at those things and see how David conquers in the face of this kind of opposition. So first, the fearful nation. As David arrives, the nation of Israel are literally shaking in their boots because they are lined up in this valley on the two hills facing the Philistine army, one nation on either hill with the valley in between. And uh, the, the Israelites are just afraid of what's going on. Now, if you, if you think that reading the Bible means looking at every single character and trying to imitate them, well, here's an example of where that doesn't work. There's lots of things in the Bible we are not meant to imitate. The Bible records for us life as it is, people with their frailties and their failure and their fear, and that is what's happening with Israel here. We're not meant to imitate them in this. Israel and the Philistines uh, are facing off, and this huge giant comes in front day after day for 40 days. He's carrying huge weapons, amazing armor, he's nine foot tall, nine inches. He's an enormous man. And chapter 17, verse 8 says this, why do you come out and line up for battle? This is what the Philistine Goliath is saying to the nation of Israel. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The Philistines are not this kind of modern democratic state. Don't think of them like that. They are a nation, a wild nation, living in the wild Near Eastern uh, world. 
they, that, that world was full of child sacrifice, the commodification of women, torture, uh, ethnic and religious cleansing, invasion, uh, you name it, that was going on in the world of the day. And the Philistines are just one of the nations taking part in that world with its corrupt morals. And God has looked at the nations in that world and he said, that's it, I'm done. And I'm sending my nation Israel in to wipe them out. God was distressed by their sin, offended by their sin, and God is not this kind of pushover in the sky. God is the just God who created all nations, all things, and all people are held to account with him. And God had commanded Israel to destroy this nation of the Philistines, to defend themselves against them and to wipe them out. And so Israel stand before their enemy and stand before this giant and what is their response? Do they say, let's pray and then go into the battle? Let's trust God and believe that he will help us here? Do they say, let's take courage? No, they are so human. They fail to have faith. They fail to fulfill his word. And verse 11 tells us they were dismayed and terrified. How often is that exactly how we live, even as Christians today? Dismayed and terrified. We have so much evidence of God's goodness, his faithfulness. We have so many examples of the way that he has uh, stood up for himself and how he has built his kingdom and how he has grown uh, people as his people. And yet we look at the world, we look at ourselves, we look at what's going on, and we are dismayed and terrified. We're so often just like Israel here. So David faces the opposition of a fearful nation. But he also faces a feeble king. Saul, you might remember, stands head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. He was a tall man. He was a good-looking man. And if anyone should have been able to stand up against this giant, it was actually Saul. (laughs) But where is he? See verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So the man who is meant to be the leader has become the follower. And the man who is meant to stand above the nation and direct them in the way to go is blending in with his people and sitting back and hoping no one notices him. And David comes onto the scene absolutely full of faith and optimism from God. And verse 32, he says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. But what does Saul say to David? Basically says, don't be silly, young boy. You're not the one to go and do this. And even though he eventually sends David out, and tries to weigh him down with his armour at first, and that doesn't work, and he he eventually sends him out. He kind of does it half-heartedly with religious platitudes, like, God bless you, David, as you go and fight. He's not exercising faith. True faith always appreciates true faith when it sees it, whether it's in a child or a teenager or an adult or someone on their deathbed. True faith doesn't have conditions on faith. It doesn't say, 
Yes, trust God, but you also need to be six foot six, have a great network, have a good life experience and have money and backing behind you. True faith says all things are possible for God. Maybe not for people, but where God wants something to happen, he will make a way for it to happen. David has faith. But where does Saul look in all of this? He doesn't look to God. He looks at this young man, David, and he just says, that's hopeless. That is impossible. That is ridiculous. And Saul here has become something that many Christians sadly become, which is cynical. Paul Miller, in his great book, A Praying Life, says this, Many Christians give in to a quiet cynicism that leaves us unknowingly paralysed. We see the world as monolithic, frozen. To ask God for change confronts us with our doubt about whether prayer makes any difference. Is change even possible? Doesn't God control everything? If so, what's the point? Because it's uncomfortable to feel our unbelief to come face to face with our cynicism we dull our souls with the narcotic of activity many christians haven't stopped believing in god we have just become functional deists living with god at a distance is that true saul is exactly like that and so david faces the opposition of a feeble king he also faces opposition from a faithless brother Remember Eliab, I want to say Eliab, Eliab from last week. Um, I think Eliab is better. Um, The handsome specimen of an older brother, the Brad Pitt of the family, remember him? He now confronts David when he overhears him speaking. Says verse 28, why have you come down here? And with who did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are. And how wicked your heart is, you came down only to watch the battle. Anger, confrontation, accusation, slander, humiliation. Sounds just like an older brother, doesn't it? And David knows how to deal with it. He basically says, well, I am sorry for breathing. And then he goes and continues on his way. And in Christian communities today, I wonder how many of our organisational structures in churches, in other groups, even in our families, are a little bit like Eliab. I wonder if someone comes with a vision of how God could do something in this situation or how we might want to pray for something big to happen or how we might want to trust that Perhaps God could help us get an increase in the budget and move forward and and bring people with us and see the kingdom advance and it involves time and energy and effort and then someone comes and says, no, it's never going to work. I wonder if the spirit of Eliab is alive and well in Christian communities today. So David faces opposition from a faithless brother. And finally, he faces opposition from a frightening enemy. There's the enemies lined up against Israel. There's Goliath. He's almost a foot taller than the tallest person in our world record books. 
He was a hardened warrior, obviously had a loud voice because they heard him and they retreated every time they heard him. He had impressive armor, nearly 60 kilograms of armor. The only exposed area was his face. He had a spear where the tip weighed about the same as three and a half house bricks. And I've never noticed this before, but verse 8, he had an assistant with him, a shield bearer as well. This man was impenetrable, undefeatable by any human standard. And yet, there is an invisible character in this account, and that's God himself. And God is the true giant here, and Goliath is dwarfed by the power of God. In the face of all this opposition, David, relying on God, conquers. And verses 45 to 47 have sometimes been called David's gospel. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David is the anointed one, the one in the previous chapter whom God has put his spirit on, the one whom God is bringing to be the new king of Israel. And God is using David to spread his own name and his own fame. Have a look again at verse 46. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's what's going to happen when David defeats this man. This is the gospel of David. It will proclaim to the whole world how great God is. Imagine you're in a sporting team where every week you came to play and you fell behind, like really behind. <laughs> and then imagine sometime in the second half of the game that your team makes a comeback. And imagine that this happened every week of playing. <laughs> You'd get a reputation amongst all the teams of being quite an unpredictable team to look out for, wouldn't you? <laughs> People would say they look like they're going really badly and then they come through. Well, that's the character of the God of the Bible. Time and time again, it looks like it's hopeless and God does things that are powerful and amazing through his chosen person at just the right moment when he decides to. Think of Abraham, the man who was way past it. Think of Isaac, the son who was about to be killed. Think of Jacob, the weakling who couldn't even hunt an animal. Think of Joseph, the younger brother who was left for dead in a ditch. Think of Joshua, the man who refused to fit in with people's expectations. Think of David, the shepherd boy who slayed this giant with a sling by his trust in God. Some popular preaching on this book, as I've said, suggests we should kind of find our giants and slay them. But David, Goliath is not your unemployment or your marriage difficulties or your health issues. He's just a tall man in history. The problem is this story is not actually all about a giant. This story is all about God. 
It's about what God's doing. God's getting the victory. It's about God using David to achieve his plans and his purposes. Sometimes as Christians, I think we look too much inward. We look at our own faith all the time. And we think, how can I bolster my faith? How can I raise the spiritual temperature in my life? How can I do more things to to increase my faith? And there is a place for looking at ourselves. But we need to look away from ourselves mostly and look up to God. And when you look to God and listen to his word and see who he is and remember his promises and see his character and see what he's done... You find that as you're looking at him, faith springs to life. So I want to encourage you to look outside of yourself to God. He's bigger. His plan is wider. His purposes are deeper. His wisdom is greater than what we so often realize. David conquered here because of God in the face of all this opposition. So remember God. But this story would be incomplete if we left it here because this is found in our Old Testament and this points forward to Jesus. And so the the second thing I want to look at today is that in the face of opposition, Jesus conquers. In Romans chapter 1, we read this description of Jesus. It says, As to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness... He was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He is the Son of David and the Son of God. The Son of David who sat on David's throne and established God's kingdom, not in Israel, but in eternity. He's the Son of God who, by his powerful resurrection, shows the whole world his glory. And as Jesus went about his mission on the way to the cross and his resurrection, he also faced enormous opposition. Opposition from the fearful nation. The Jews were terrified of the Romans. Opposition from the feeble king. Herod handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. He faced opposition from faithless brothers. His own family thought he'd lost his mind. And ultimately he faced a frightening enemy because the cross was not just wood and nails. It was the place where God would pour out his anger on Jesus, where he, as the sacrifice for sin, would take the punishment that we deserved to have the victory over Satan and sin and death all at once. And how did Jesus go about doing all of this? He didn't falter, he didn't trip up, he didn't lose track of his mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 54 says this, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we enjoy that victory. We live in the light of it. We live in the good of it. One of the other pastors at church this week, James, pointed out to me that in the passage, it's only after Goliath is defeated that the Israelites have boldness to go forward and pursue the Philistines. 
And it's the same for us. It's only as we know that our sin has been dealt with and that death has been dealt with and that Satan has been dealt with that we now have boldness to go out and fight God's battle. And it's not a battle with swords and against people like in this time back in the Old Testament. It's a battle for winning people to come and know Jesus by proclaiming his word. The Apostle Paul says to the church leaders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That is Paul fighting in the wake of the victory of Jesus. And as Christians, there are two things that are true for us now. Number one is that our life is not everything. And number two is that death is not the end. It was back in 1956 when a young American named Jim Elliott died, along with four other young men, and they died in Ecuador in the jungle. And they were there because they were preaching the gospel. They'd spent months getting ready for this. They'd been trying to make contact with this isolated tribe that had never heard about Jesus. Uh, they'd thought that things were going well, and then when they landed the plane, a short time later, the five of them were killed by this tribal group and leaving, left behind widows and children. But before he died, Jim wrote in his diary these words which have now become famous. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, money, my time, my life. All these things that so many people live for, he is no fool who gives up these things to gain what he cannot lose only to be brought into the good of the victory that Jesus has won for us at the cross as you enter into the kingdom of God. That is a life lived in light of the victory of Christ. At other times in history, historians have pointed out the difference that Christians have made because they haven't been afraid of this world and the things that are around us particularly during times of pandemics, Christians have been known as those who stayed and who helped the sick, who looked after people. The sociologist Rodney Stark has suggested that uh, in, in Christian cities where, 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 sorry, in cities where Christians stayed behind, that death rates may have been half of that in other cities. That was the case in the terrible Antonine Plague of the second century, which killed off about a quarter of the Roman Empire. But Christians through this time were known to be those who would stay beside their neighbour, unafraid of the consequences for their lives, who looked after them, who loved them, who cared for them. And it led to the rapid spread of Christianity. The plague of of Cyprian was similar. The bishop Dionysius described how Christians, heedless of danger, took charge of the sick, attending to their need. 
The victory of Christ changes how we live. We are no longer afraid of what is coming. We no longer count our lives as the most important thing in the universe because Jesus takes our place. So the only bucket list that Christians really need to have is to love our neighbour and to preach Jesus. What other things do we need on our bucket list? And we don't go by that saying, YOLO, you only live once. Because we know that now, because of Jesus' victory, this life is just the opening act to life in his kingdom forever. And so we are free now to give up our lives, to throw it away in one sense, because we know Jesus has given us so much by what he's done. David said, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And through our lives, through our example, through our words, people also may know the victory of the greater son of David, who has defeated the greatest enemies for us. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for King David and for what he shows us of your power. And Father, we thank you for the greater King, your Son, our King Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Father, we thank you for the kingdom he establishes forever with no end. So Father, help us to live in light of the great things Jesus has done for us. His victory over Satan, over sin, over death. Help us not to fear anymore, but to live boldly and sacrificially for your glory in this world. In his name we pray. Amen.